Welcome to Cinema Duel, a podcast where my friend Chris and myself, John, talk about a pair of movies around a theme of our choosing. Chris, how are you this evening? I am hot, John, but I am raring to go to talk about movies. How are you today? I am uh, surprisingly not as hot, but uh, give me a, like an hour or so, and I'm sure that'll change. So, I'm. Uh, but I am also excited to uh, to talk about movies uh, and uh, the Varda box set that I ordered and definitely can't afford now that I don't have a job is coming in next week. Uh, so I am like super psyched. I am super psyched for you and super jealous that I should have picked that up and Criterion just did it. It just finished its flash sale uh, and I didn't even think about it. Uh, I did pick up the Bruce Lee box set, which I am halfway through and loving. So I hope you have the same level of enjoyment with the Varda box set. I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that they're both love uh, lovely in their own specifically unique ways. Maybe, maybe more kicking in my box set than in your box set. Oh, now I now I need to watch the whole box set to see if there's any kicking ever. <laughs> I guarantee you, I have more Chuck Norris in my box set than you do. <laughs> oh, okay. Now, okay, I have to start making a checklist of did this movie have <laughs> kicking or Chuck Norris? <laughs> Either one. You Jack, you might have got the Bruce Lee box set by mistake. I mean, I think there was that Demi movie that was supposed to have Harrison Ford in it, or did have Harrison Ford. I don't know. That might be close. I feel like that's as close as we're going to get. The subject for our episode today is neither Agnes Varda nor Bruce Lee, but another French person by the name of Jean-Pierre Melville. Chris, I believe this was your pick. Do you want to give us a little bit of uh, intro to Melville before we get rolling? Yeah, and quick disclaimer, I'm fairly certain Bruce Lee was not uh, French, nor was Chuck Norris, but uh, we'll throw him in that category anyway. Uh, Yeah, this was my pick. Um, Jean-Pierre Melville was a director that I came to kind of um, early in my obsession with the Criterion collection because he uses a lot as his kind of template for what he wants to explore. He uses a lot of the, um, a lot of the thematic and, uh, narrative elements that I'm used to kind of growing up, which is a lot around the heist films, the crime films and, and film noir in general. So when I started kind of picking through the movies that I wanted to explore and learn more about, I gravitated to the ones that I would have some level of familiarity with. Um, so he was an er early one for me, just a little bit of background. Um, French, as you said, kind of considered, um, I don't want to say the godfather of the French New Wave. I don't really think he's even a part of the French New Wave, especially when you look at his films. There is certainly a um, Western feel to them that a lot of the French New Wave kind of took as they jumped on, but but very much a different tone. But one of the things that kind of struck me about um, Melville is... um, how he was kind of at, at the forefront of, of, of that movement, how he kind of uses a lot of those tenets to kind of craft his own, his own uh, explorations into character. And one, one of the things I found really interesting, and I, I think it, it, it cries out in both of the films we're going to talk about today, is that uh, for all the crime films and all the heist films that he did, um, I watched an interview with him recently and they said, you know, what do you think about the 
criminal element. What's your what's your thought of them? You've made so many films about them. And he goes, oh, I absolutely despise them because there's no love for them there at all. But but the crime film and the film noir and the heist film, um, the way that they work from a mechanical perspective allows him an entryway to kind of um, look closer into the characters that he wants to explore. And I, I think he does a really interesting job of that with the two films that we're going to talk about. So um, I really enjoy him. You are not going to find a guy who likes hats probably more than Melville does. Um, there was a um, there was a quote. I'm, I'm taking this from Wikipedia right right now, but uh, it's a great quote that kind of sums up what Melville is and what a lot of Melville's work is. So this came from the critic Anthony Lane in The New Yorker uh, after a retrospective. So um, he was speaking about a particular film, but th this can apply for almost everything. This is how you should attend the retrospective of Jean-Pierre Melville. Tell nobody what you are doing. Even your loved ones, especially your loved ones, must be kept in the dark. If it comes to a choice between smoking and talking, smoke. Dress well, but without ostentation. Wear a raincoat, button and belted, regardless of whether there is rain. Any revolver should be kept until you need it in the pocket of the coat. Finally, before you leave home, put your hat on. If you don't have a hat, you can't go. And uh, I definitely want to talk about hats in both of the films that we're going to talk about because they, they, th from a visual perspective, they're, they're such a prominent presence in the films. But uh, that to me kind of, if, if that description of Melville doesn't make you want to watch a Melville film, then chances are you're not going to watch any Melville film. Uh, but if that appeals to you, have at it, jump in. You can't do better than the two films that we're going to talk about today as an entry point if you're not familiar with the man's work. Absolutely. And you mentioned uh, an interview with Melville where he talks about how he actually dislikes, uh, you know, he hates crime and criminals and, and, and the all gangster that element. Yeah. yeah. It, 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 I think that in some, and sometimes when we talk about directors, we talk about, um, we sort of use the work to try and like retroactively work back and try and figure out what the directors are about. That's a fairly common move. I feel like in a lot of film conversation, I feel like with Melville, with the stuff that was coming up when I was looking up interviews on Melville, it seems he seems to be a hard person to get a bead on. There are things in what you said that almost feel to contradict some of the stuff that I was looking up. And I think that trying to like psychoanalyze Melville is if not impossible, then perhaps, uh, outside of my pay grade, I suppose. It'll come up, I think, a little bit in in both of these movies, but uh, a lot the, the, the crime stuff is a lot of fun, even in the even in our second choice, which isn't theoretically a movie about crime. He's an interesting figure, so uh, why don't we get started uh, heading into our first movie? So the first film we're going to talk about is the 1967 neo-noir crime film Le Samurai. Uh, this is um, one of, for me, just kind of the classic cool um, gangster hitmen movies of all time. It has a long line of influences. We're going to talk about some of those influences when we talk about our recommendations um, after the episode's over, but 
this is to me, if you want to talk about kind of like the quintessential, the quintessential Melville crime film, this is it. Very light on dialogue, very light on plot. Uh, one of the things I find really fascinating about Melville in general um, and with this film and the, the next film we're going to talk about in particular is that uh, to your point earlier, John, as far as psychoanalyzing him or like carving out to understand what the bigger themes and 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 things that he's trying to express in his films are, I get a sense that that, that might be, to your point, a bit of a fool's errand. Uh, I think he is very much... He has stories that he wants to tell, but they are stories and, 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 and they are events that he wants to kind of impart. But where his genius really lies is not in what he's trying to say, but in how he goes about saying it. Uh, for him, it is meticulous construction. It is the mechanics of plot. It is the way things unfold, usually without a lot of dialogue. Um, and there is almost no dialogue in Le Samurai. I mean, it, it's, it's here and there, but uh, this is a movie about a hitman named Jeff Costello, played by, and holy crap, if this is your first introduction to Elaine Delon, I envy you, because this might be one of the coolest characterizations in modern film history. This is the template for uh, Chow Yun-Fat in numerous John Woo films. This is the template for every cool collected hitman that you've seen uh it all kind of kind of boils back down to elaine delon in Le samurai so what this essentially is this is a story about a hitman who uh lives by a very specific code the the name Le samurai should hint toward you know his ideals and virtues around the bushido code of the samurai and uh he does a hit and it's a perfect, meticulous hit, but there is a witness. And uh, uh, the events of the movie is about what happens when the witness sees him. He is arrested, uh, how he gets out of that, who the witness is, and what he then has to do to kind of um, extricate himself from the complications of being witnessed for this hit. Uh, th that's the story in a nutshell. It doesn't really have a lot of huge highs and lows and arcs um, because what the movie is really about is about the type of person that this hitman is. W what type of person is Jeff Costello? He is very much a cipher. You know very little about him. The film opens kind of beautifully um, him laying in his bed in a static shot of his kind of weather-beaten room. There is a bird cage in the middle of the room with a bird. That bird plays a wonderful role later on um, it, it, in a couple of really cool tense sequences involving the police. Um, and he gets up, puts on his coat and his hat fastidiously, uh, and goes and performs a hit. And, and, and from there, it just kind of hits. Uh, to kind of speak more of what happens in the film, kind of is besides the point of what the film is, which is just this, this look at this person and the code that he lives by and how, when he is put into a complicated situation, how he adheres to that code to get himself out of it. Uh, so again, I don't want to get too much into it until I talk to you about it, John. So I know you saw this twice when we talked a little bit earlier and there was a lot more of an impact for you the second time you saw it. So maybe if, if you would, let's start with what did you think of the film overall the first time you saw it and what changed when you saw it the second time to kind of, I'm hoping, bring you around to the film's kind of um, charm? I think because this movie is so sparse in its dialogue and I actually timed it the second time, I think it's like 
10 to 12 minutes before someone says a single word. It's nine minutes and 54 seconds <laughs> before the first word. I think what Melville does best in the movies we're talking about is uh, his sense of style. He's able to, uh, through the through the costuming, through the through like shooting at real locations, through camera movements and color, like um, the, the the colors in the movie, like it, just the just the way everything feels is so rich. No one uses blues and grays quite like Melville does. <laughs> yeah, I think it's actually a big thing about Melville is that he. It's not that people aren't necessarily just not talking, but that there is a ton of like uh, glances between people that are supposed to communicate sort of the 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 tension uh, between characters and sort of the like uh, the, you you have catch a lot from uh, from just observing how people are looking at each other. And uh, the first time I watched it, I was probably in the middle of some kind of pandemic nervous breakdown or something and i couldn't focus and so with without the dialogue to like bring me back in i was like what i i had trouble remembering what i had just seen whereas the second time around that's when i was like oh right this is actually uh this is actually really good let's talk about alain delon for a second when you watch alain delon in other non-melville movies like he is not sort of the like completely stoic uh, uh, silent protagonist like uh, yeah. we watched Purple Noon last night and he's just I mean he's a creep obviously um, in that movie but he's like he's alive and he like has fun he has facial expressions he seems to show emotion and do all the th- and he's completely riveting in that um, but then watching him in in, uh, in Le Samurai watching him come into the the orbit of, uh, of Melville and he is just you know he does the the Melville thing, which is like you don't you don't talk unless you absolutely have to. You know you wear you don't you don't betray emotion. You don't you, you do everything as minimally as possible. Yeah, everything is internal. You, your your minimal comment is a great kind of running theme. I think through everything Melville does, it is very minimalist. And like you notice that even in his apartment, uh, the opening shot, like the opening credits of the movie, play out while he's just lying down on the mattress in his one room apartment, his shitty apartment that has almost nothing in it other than a bird, a bird cage. The, the minimalism, I think you could probably trace back to ideas of like people in Melville movies are often very alone. They're, they're sort of like lone operators. They don't really do a lot of teamwork. And even when there is teamwork, it's often fraught with tension and betrayal. And like, there is a lot of like, we're people working together for common cause, but that is almost always in danger of falling apart and in the samurai especially he is literally by himself there is he has one person i think who's maybe on his side but like he's otherwise like don't talk to anyone don't um and and i think that when you talk about movies that get influenced by this uh it can get to some you know, Americanized, super aggro. Well, I mean, I guess John would be an exception to that. Like the, the, this influence doesn't always, I think, work out in a great way. But when you have the 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 style and the and the, the languid pace of a Melville movie, um, where they actually take the time to soak you in those feelings, it doesn't feel quite as like hostile. I guess that makes sense. Well, yeah, it does. And one of the things I find interesting, a lot of what you're talking about are also themes and tenets of film noir. So I I think there's a lot of crossover there. And one of the things I find interesting is how much of this is 
kind of the inherent, I think to your point, the inherent Frenchness of what Melville is trying to do and, and the philosophies inherent therein and how much of this are tenets of the film noir, the heist film, the gangster film. Um, it's going to be interesting when we talk about the next film, which is not a gangster hitman film. There are a lot of sequences and pieces that are part and parcel of a heist film, part and parcel of a gangster film, of, of a film noir. That sense of being alone, that 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 sense of betrayal, having to work together, but then um, the tragedy of betrayal of close allies and 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 self sacrifice, and um, that sense of sacrifice, like all of those things, could very heavily point toward the the film noir influence that that. Melville uses as a template many times, but also to your point, very much could be part and parcel of kind of some of the more um, philosophies that were going around in the French New Wave at the time. Uh, So it's interesting to kind of try and understand which is which um, um, here. And I, I'm, especially when if, to talk a little bit about 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 spoilers, um, I think it's a good transition to talk about. Then, what do you think of the end of the movie and how? Jeff Costello ultimately resolves <laughs> the situation that he's in. Uh, is it is it suicide by cop? It I, feels like it is. I, I I I definitely didn't catch this the first time around, and the second time I was like, wait, if he didn't have bullets in his gun, and he went to a, confront the pianist, he had to have known that people were there that were would look on that unkindly and so is this where we bring in the the samurai because i actually yes. had thought that the samurai stuff was like kind of window dressing and not and, and more like just some cool shit melville thought to throw in there but like is this sort of like a seppuku like i'm not going to allow myself to be captured and so i'm gonna you know pretend to hold this person up to kill them so that the cops come and and kill him is that the idea I, I think so. I think there are some things there. So for people who are not as familiar with the film, real quick summary. Um, the initial hit is um, Costello goes and kills the owner of a nightclub and he is witnessed by the uh, star pianist. <clears throat> So everything happens and he starts to strike up a relationship with the pianist. Um, It turns out that the person who hired him to kill the head of the nightclub is the pianist's lover. Um, And she is aware of it. Um, And they go to then gun for Costello and put him out. Uh, So he winds up going back, taking revenge and killing the person who hired him originally, goes back to the nightclub a second time uh, to confront the pianist who he feels betrayed him. Uh, And rather than kill her, he essentially kind of suicide by cop. He, he goes there, pulls a gun on her, um, does it very flagrantly. The cops arrive and kill him. And then they find out there were no bullets in the gun. Uh, there are little tricks along the way to make you realize, um, as he's going there, he very much knows he's not leaving because when you see him do the hit the first time he goes to the restaurant or the, the, the club, uh, he hides, he, kind of makes his way up this time he checks his hat and his coat and when they give him the ticket he doesn't take the ticket he leaves it there he knows he's not going to come back to reclaim his hat and his coat he walks straight in uh whereas before he hid in another doorway and kind of went behind the bar and 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 snuck up to do the hit um so there's all this stuff that that kind of happens and then it kind of leaves you with 
why did he do what he did? What is this this code that he's upholding to? And it's a it's a real it's a real it's a real quandary uh, because the whole Bushido code and is there a parallel there to to, to to what he's doing? Why is he allowing himself to die? Is it because he's turned against his employer uh, and and there's a, a sense of having to redeem himself there? Is it because he's just tired? He's been he's been shot at multiple times. There's a beautiful sequence where he gets shot in the arm and he's constantly having to redress the bandage because it's bleeding through everything. Um, It's a, again, I I don't know if it's, I, one of the questions I had about the film and, and it's what kind of involves me so much in it is, I don't know how that ending, it's not an easy ending. It doesn't tie everything together. There's not a clear understanding as to why Costello does what he does. Uh, But it just plays beautifully uh, with the way that Costello kind of approaches the girl, um, Valerie, uh, allows himself to die and then the audience leaves the film with the knowledge of it was all intentional on his part but nothing to explain what that intention was for uh it's, it's just something that i love about the film melville is a very detail-oriented filmmaker and and so much of the planning and the plotting i found so many stories about like especially in the both these movies about like you were talking about even how he doesn't take the ticket with him at the at the coat check at the end. Nothing ever feels out of place in a Melville movie such that, or at least in the ones that I've watched, such that it's easy to actually go through that movie and then sort of experience the ending and then like taking a while until you realize, hey, wait a minute, what just happened? <laughs> if I can pivot for a second, one of the plot things that I really liked about this movie is the cop who is investigating him. Yes. The way that the investigation into the nightclub owner murder goes down is that uh, Jeff is so good at his job at establishing airtight alibis that the majority of the police uh, or the majority of the detectives investigating the case quickly dismiss him as a subject or uh, as a suspect. And and with good reason, like there's there's no reason that um, anyone should ever uh, consider him as being uh the guy who did it, uh, and yet the cop is hell bent on pursuing Jeff as the prime suspect, and yeah. and of course he's right, but like it's almost this sort of like weird irony that he actually ends up getting it right because everyone else is rightly telling him no, none of this adds up. Like his alibis check out. Um, yeah, it's 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 a lot of fun to watch him like be be right, but for no reason other than just his own instinct. Yeah, well, I I think he says as his his reasoning, the alibi is so airtight, it's impossible. No one's alibi is ever that airtight. Therefore, this is the guy who did it. Um, and and he's great. That's if if there's something that's that's really wonderful about this film is it's how great of a foil. The superintendent, um, who's played by, I'm going to, again, I take every opportunity to mispronounce the name, Francois Perrier, or Perrier, uh, they, they don't, he doesn't have a name in the film. He's just the superintendent of, of, of police. And he is, uh, he's a fantastic foil to Costello trying to understand what, what's going on. There are, there are other sequences. Um, there, there's a whole, 
Melville is great at silent sequences. Everything is with a glance, to your point, you, you said everything. Everything is internalized. Um, there's a wonderful sequence where cops break into his apartment and bug the apartment. Uh, and it's just a wonderful, just the sequence of how they do it and what they do and how meticulous and careful they are is wonderful. Um, it's a great sequence in and of its own. And then it's made even better when Costello comes back in and how he discovers that they bugged his room. Um, again, using, um, using the bird and the birdcage. It's, it's just a wonderful Chekhov does the thing where if you show a gun in act one, it's got to come back to play. So it, it, we talked both of us about that wonderful opening scene, how it's framed that very spare ratted apartment um, with just a birdcage in the middle of it and a bird and how that bird comes into play later with the bugging scene. It's, it's just fantastic. And then later an attempted um, hit on Costello. They, they use the same trick with the bird again. And it's, there is just these wonderful silent moments that um, as potentially derivative as this film is hitman does a hit the hit goes bad he has to take his revenge that's literally all this movie is but the way that he crafts it the construction of the piece um one of my favorite critics uh roger ebert has always said it's not what a film it's about it's how it goes about it it, it is everything about this movie is about the way that melville constructs it and the way that he builds each piece and the way he uses color and the way that he accentuates and defines a character like Costello. One of the biggest characterizations of Costello is the fact that uh, he's always wearing that coat. And every time he puts his hat on, he puts his hat on the same way. He puts it on um, and he, you know, uh, rubs his hand across the brim on the sides and then takes his fingers and flicks the top uh, front of the hat. And then he goes out. It's just like a, it's this little thing. And, and that precision and the way that Costello dresses himself speaks everything to Costello's precision as a hitman. So it's just those little moments. It's so few directors that kind of luxuriate in those tiny pieces. Um, but that's all Melville does is he luxuriates in those tiny pieces. And that's what makes this movie um, as, as great an example of the Hitman film uh, as the French, as a Melville film, as a potential peripheral French New Wave film um, as this movie is. Yeah, and you were talking about the the, the cops bugging his apartment scene as this quiet uh, scene of like tension and detail as they sort of like set about their work. I think the other example for me is the, the pair of uh, foot chases and chases is even the wrong word. There's a couple sequences yeah. in the movie where the cops are trying to follow him. And especially the second one where all of the caught, like the, the superintendent gets his, gang of detectives saying we're going to try and track this guy down and comes up with and again this is in like the 60s so like there's not you know modern technology that we would understand to try and find someone but what he does is he gives everyone um some kind of signaling device so that uh that's connected to a map that he has back in his office so that if they see him they can hit a button and then their light pops up on the map so that he knows like where they are and where he is and they can try and track him that way. And the whole sequence is just a series of scenes of, uh, of Ellen Delon walking and people tailing behind him and him trying to lose the tail. And no one's ever yelling. No one's ever making a face. They're just like glance, casual glances in all directions. And uh, occasionally the light goes on or off in the map. And yeah. it's, and it's this incredibly tense, 
like it, again, de- de- details are never missed. Um, uh, but as this incredibly tense uh, following scene, I guess, yeah, <laughs> if not a ch- if not a if not quite a chase, um, that that's actually a fairly significant chunk of time too. Um, that ended up probably being like, as far as like set pieces go, I think that's probably one of the biggest ones. And it's, yeah, uh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's an absolute joy. Is there, is there music to that sequence? I feel like there's not. Yeah. That's a huge thing with Melville, the way that he uses music. Um, the, the first, a lot of the film is silent or it, it's just using, you know, the sound that it's not diegetic sound because that, that, that implies music, but, um, it, it is just the, the ambience of the moment. Uh, the first time there is sound, it's a beautiful moment. Um, earlier it's when he steals a car to go to do the hit and, uh, he sits down he has a huge, the way that they stole cars in this movie is he sits in a car that was, that's left open and he pulls out a huge key ring of like 30 keys and he sits it on the passenger seat of the car. And then as this beautiful organ music plays, he very calmly and slowly takes each key and tries to fit it into the ignition until he gets one that works. And then when it works, he just drives away. Um, but those instances of music are very few and far between. And typically, especially with with, with modern film and modern movies, we're used to the score being this um, very present bombastic thing that that adds emotional weight to certain scenes and if it's a, a, a tense scene like like the chase scene the quote chase scene because there's not a lot of chasing um, you know you would expect that to be the music the time that the music really kicks kicks in to add to the tension but what Melville is so brilliant at is he doesn't use music in that regard at all he just lets the event play out. Um, typically very silently with just the footfalls and the traffic and the noise outside um, and the switches of, of, of the lights as they go on in the different areas as he's being tracked. And that in its way makes those scenes even more impactful than if a huge score was being pressed on top of it. You don't ever feel like anything is like amiss or accidental uh, when watching this kind of thing. And when it's, uh, when it's a movie that is so, again, so bare, in in in, like there there's there's a lot of like open space in the way he frames shots and the way that he uses silence and lack of music and stuff. Anytime something happens, it feels like it is, or something doesn't happen, it feels like it's by design. One of the ways that he uh, establishes an airtight alibi is by. Um, his having his lover lie for him. Uh, and as I'm rolling through the cast now, his lover Jane in the movie is played by Natalie Delon, who apparently was uh, Elaine Delon's wife at one point. I'd be curious if this was before, during, or after. Yeah, it's an, she, she, she has a really interesting role uh, and, and a fantastic role uh, in the film. Uh, her scenes are very few and far between, but she has a great scene with the superintendent as the superintendent tries to shake her down for perjury uh, after he he suspects that 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 she lied about the alibi. And she never and she never breaks either. Like, no, that's, that's that is the way that he the way that he like lays out his case to try and get her to to squeal is compelling and it is very impressive that she uh uh doesn't like there's there's no tell with her like you can't you don't see any sort of like hint of fear or anything else she's just as she's as uh as cold as uh as jeff is yeah 
Yeah, it's it's a it's a great movie. Uh, it's it's there's it's it's very simple in what it tries to set out, but the way that it sets about it is is fantastic. I I would say personally, if you're gonna start out on Melville. Um, this is a great place to start. Uh, there's a, he does a lot of other films that are crime films um, that go a little bit deeper, that are a little bit more convoluted in their construction. This is just pure kind of A to B cinema, but B kind of sits on another plane than you would normally think of. Uh, you could do a lot worse than check this out. And again, um, I'm so glad you saw Purple Noon after we were talking about it. Elaine Delon is a revelation. He might be, and I do not say this cavalierly, one of the most beautiful men I have ever seen in my life. Uh, he is the archetype of what it means to be kind of cool and collected um, as a as a hitman, uh, just as a, a superstar. He's phenomenal in this movie. Our second movie for the episode is 1969's Army of Shadows, uh, starring Lino Ventura, Simone Signoret, and a whole bunch of other people who will show up in uh, a lot of Melville movies. There's a lot of recurring faces, people you recognize. Um, this is a movie that chronicles uh, a time in the uh, French Resistance in World War II. We're def- I definitely don't want to get into like the the history of this particular movie post-release too much, but the short version is that well, we will talk about how this is possibly the the best Melville movie and one of my favorite movies possibly ever. The initial reception of this movie uh, in France was divided enough at least that it didn't actually see re- uh, a wide release outside of France until like I want 10, 15 years ago or so. It was fairly Until recent. 2006. Yeah. And so, um, and, and the reasons for that have to do a lot with the uh, political situation at the time, in France at the time. Every single time I tried to get my head around the events of what was happening around Charles de Gaulle and around uh, Melville's relationship to Charles de Gaulle, I came away more confused than before. <laughs> the first time I watched it, I had heard people talk about how great it was and i didn't know anything about melville i just said oh this this movie's on there and it's really good and i watched it and it was so it, it was i immediately ordered the blu-ray as soon as i saw it but then uh when we were getting ready for the podcast and having watched a bunch of other melville movies and mostly his crime movies i actually think this does sit very comfortably alongside his later period uh gangster movies i think one of the the things that this movie does that is really interesting is that there are characters that you follow throughout the course of the whole movie but there's not necessarily what i would call a a single narrative through line this is more like a series of episodes in the life of these people in the resistance that you're following and there are like this is almost a three-hour movie there is actually a lot of places that they go to and a lot of little tiny adventures that they get up to um this is a movie that very much does not shine a like from everything i've been able to gather the 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 
if they change the details of specific people or the specific missions that happened, all of the, if it's not the exact things that happened, they were very careful to pay close attention to the kinds of things, the kinds of people who would show up in scenes, the kinds of uh, missions they would go on or the details of like people's various, uh, you know, political affiliations and who came together and who was, um, who is working against the Germans, who is working for the Germans and how those things get uh, muddled and aren't always, this is not a movie that has any sort of like mythological quality to the resistance. Like talking to my uh, father-in-law, who is a a British man, uh, an elderly British man. When I told him I was watching this movie about the French resistance, he laughed and said, oh yeah, everyone's, everyone talks about how they were in the French resistance. Everyone wanted to claim, oh yeah, I fought the Germans, but that's, absolutely not the case and i feel like and i was surprised and laughed and said oh yeah this actually that i think that's what this movie is about people betraying other people and not like the the where people's allegiances actually lie but also in the activities of what people did like people would like an act of resistance is one person giving lino ventura a haircut uh and not turning him in and it's a powerful moment but like that person could say I'm in the resistance, even though like they gave someone a haircut, noticed he was in the resistance and didn't turn them into the Germans one time, Um, which is not to minimize it, but like it gives a much more like ground level, like realistic perspective of what that experience was. There is nothing glamorized about the resistance in this film. And I, and I think that's its intent and that's its genius. Here's my one piece about the whole De Gaulle thing, which is that apparently it was not cool to show De Gaulle in a movie in any sort of positive light. But the truth is that De Gaulle was in the movie for like a like one scene and didn't say anything. Like he was in there for like five seconds at most. Um, and so, and because this movie is does show the resistance in such a morally ambiguous uh, way that is very similar to sort of the 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 gangster movies that Melville does. We are on the side of the resistance people as they sort of conduct their secret covert missions. But like a lot of times they're not particularly spectacular. A lot of them are actually fairly mundane things. But then also the big finale of the movie is that uh, is specifically how their loyalty and their goal, like their friendship falls apart when they have to, you know, murder each other in the name of uh, not having anyone squeal on them. I think it's interesting too that you call that the finale of the film because it's it's this is a movie that is I, I think to your point there is no real kind of there's no through line there's no normal structured narrative arc that this film takes it's very episodic it is very much about what that life was like a couple of things th- so th- this is loosely based on Joseph Kessel's um, 1943 book. Um, I, I know also parts of it are based on Melville's recollection. He was part of the French resistance. He, um, in, in, in 1940. And it's really interesting to see this was made in, was it 1969? Yeah. So this is a person looking back 25, 30 years, um, on events that, uh, he was a part of, and he looks at it to your point in a very kind of acidic, um, unglamorized light. And I, I think that's, that's so much of where the genius of this film lies. Um, not only in its, and I'm sure we're going to talk about how 
unbelievable the performances are and the fact that I want I I, I know he's not uh, alive at this point but I want Lino Ventura in every movie I see from now until the end of time uh, yeah. uh, he, he just phenomenal Simone um, Signoret uh, as Matilda is again these are some of the best performances I've ever seen in a film in a film that was lost for so many years only to get kind of reapprised and reevaluated um i tried to dig into the de gaulle stuff like like you did and i i i think some of it is chalked up to at the time that the movie was made and just how just like in america i'm, I'm sure canada has its 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 degrees like like this as well you know um when you're in the grips of war there is a fervor and there is a feeling there that dissipates and then as you look on the folly of war years later um it's not you know, no one looks at MacArthur the same way now for very good reasons that they looked on MacArthur uh, in the 50s and 60s um, after the end of World War II. Um, certain things come to light. Uh, the thing that I find so interesting, though, is that how despised and controversial this film may have been. And looking at it as an outsider, as an American in 2020, and in, I saw this, I think, in 2007, 2008. I got it when it first came out on DVD from the Criterion Collection, um, I look at it as, again, kind of a, to your point, this this is almost, in a way, an indictment of the things that these people had to do. Um, for all those people who jumped up and said, yes, I was part of the French Resistance, this shows you what it means to really have been part of the French Resistance. And it is oftentimes ugly, it is oftentimes horrific, and it is oftentimes just just so demoralizing in what needs and what needed to happen uh, to kind of stave off the German occupation of, of France. Uh, it's a horrific film, uh, but it's also, there's not a moment at close to three hours. I could not tell you that this film was too slow or too long or too anything uh, to your point, kind of rewatching it again over the weekend uh, this has jumped up to kind of be one of my favorite films. In the Criterion version, there's a commentary uh, from film scholar Jeanette Vincendo, and there's a couple points uh, One of that caught my attention, one of which I'll just mention now, which is the idea of um, when they go, when Lino Ventura goes to uh, London, um, some time he spent there is, or it, it shows him going to a theater to watch gone with the wind and they're just completely enthralled by it. Um, and of course now we look back, uh, and you know, we can understand that like, Oh wow. Gone with the wind, uh, as important as it is to movie history, there's some like some really problematic shit in that movie, <laughs> but, 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 um, but Jeanette Vincendo makes the point that like, because American cinema was banned in uh, in Germany, even watching uh, American films was seen as an act of resistance. To a small country or a theater-going audience at the time in 1940 when so many films were getting banned and so many films that were getting shown or getting shown in heavily edited or just spliced or in crummy condition, um, I can imagine what it would be like to see the beauty and grandeur of a color film like gone with the wind and kind of have that hope of like, they, they walk out of the theater and they say, well, you know, if everyone saw that film, the, the war would be over, you know, that that's, there are so many things that that says, but part of it's just the beauty of 
the transformation of film. I'm happy to not uh, uh, get into any sort of, you know, argument about uh, Gone with the Wind. I'm, I, I it just sort of, uh, to be clear, I laughed. Horribly yeah. racist. Yeah, 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 yeah. So many problems now. We're yeah. aware of it. It just made me laugh when I heard it. I was like, oh, right. Watching this movie would be sort of rebellious if you were in Europe. If you're in Europe in 1940, right. I, I mean, it's a very different time and you have to kind of take that into play. Uh, but I think this movie does the same thing. I think you watch this movie and you understand what it meant to fight for your country. And it's a wonderful film that is heroic, but not being a heroic film. Right? These people are doing what they need to do to kind of liberate France and 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 get on get out from under the goose stepping foot of the German occupation. Um and there's they are heroes, but there is nothing heroic or it is not at least portrayed heroic in the film at all. It is often portrayed as just cruel and inhuman and tragic and miserable and it, Despite all of that, please don't go away thinking this movie is any of those things. Uh, this movie is a is a marvel from start to finish. We should talk about why. Well, I'll start with, uh, I mean, I don't know if we want to go chronologically, but the first thing that comes to my mind is when uh, uh, Ventura, whose I think his character's name is Gerbier, he, when Gerbier returns, like, he goes to London, I think, about, like, halfway through the movie or so, and on his return to France to sort of, you know, continue, because the, 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 the pace and rhythm of this movie is largely, like, we go to a place, we do a thing, we go to the next place and do a thing, and it ends up taking them from, like, all kinds of different places within France and even London, like, it's, it, this is a movie where there is a lot of movement and one of the and after he goes back uh from london he gets parachuted out of a yes um, out of a fighter plane and he's never done he's never parachuted before he's you know you can see the one moment of hesitation where he's like doesn't know if he's gonna do it but you know like everything else in the movie it's a thing that has to happen and so he just does it um and it's and it's without romance or like it's just sort of like okay i went to go see gun with the wind now i have to go parachute for the first time into into war toward france if you've never seen lino ventura i think the best way to describe him is he is a somewhat short somewhat stout middle-aged he looks like an accountant He's got glasses. He's a very fastidious, neat looking man who looks like he should be doing your taxes. He does not look like the head of the French resistance network, which is actually what he is. And and a lot of this movie is tied together by his experiences in these different episodes, whether it's in Paris or whether it's in London. So, so much of this is just, it just sits on his shoulders um he is not the dashing hero there are other people in this film that are very much cut from that dashing hero mold and and you see what happens to them later uh jean-francois jardy who is the younger brother of luc jardy who turns out to be he's the big chief he's the head of the resistance you know he is the dashing super handsome guy and you see what happens to him and the stuff that he goes through but so much of this this movie is tied into um Gerbier, uh, if i'm saying his his name right and his reactions and that that scene in particular where he has to parachute 
it, it, again, the great thing about Melville is the details. And even if nothing is said and very little is said in, in the whole sequence, you, you understand how new he is at this. Uh, he, he wears glasses and he has to tape his glasses to his face so that they don't fall off when he does the parachute jump. Um, he's woken up a couple of times for false alarms and he's, he's constantly startled. He's just trying to get some sleep until the, the, the actual jump occurs. So much of it is in, again, just those small details details. There's a wonderful section where I say wonderful, I'm kind of using it a bit sarcastically where he and his compatriots have to um, assassinate a traitor. So they had got a safe house to do this. But since they had rented the safe house, when they finally get there, neighbors have moved in with kids. Uh, their gun doesn't have a silencer. They don't have a knife. They don't know how to do this assassination. None of them has killed anybody before. Um, and that, you know, sets up this incredible sequence as to how they're going to get rid of this person who's a traitor to the resistance. The whole movie is constructed on these little episodic um, scenarios that don't build to a huge finale. I, I mean, you can say that there is a finale of, of sorts based on the relationships, but there's no arc of like, I do A, B, and C, and that leads to the big confrontation at D where I meet the bad guy, and then here's the denouement and the climax and the end. This is not that type of movie. This is a day in the life. This is the course of a couple of months or, or, or years in the French resistance kind of revolving around this one guy. And the way that Melville constructs it and the way that he plays with relationships and the way that so much is done without speaking. Um, again, it's everything that La Samurai was, including like a heist sequence and there's an escape sequence. Um, it, it, it takes all the tenets of film noir. It takes all the tenets of everything he's done before, but it puts it in this completely new perspective this completely new scenario of a war film and a resistance film and a spy film this might be the ultimate spy film uh in its way um and it, he's able to kind of elevate it to a level that i i would be hard pressed to think of other films in this genre that equal it if there is one thing that we could talk about as far as like critiquing melva and i'm not even sure it's a critique so much um i think you could find silver linings in this i think that his when he does want to do things that are bigger that are more ambitious and less minimal in that sense there there is like i really like the parachuting sequence but the the shots where he the the exterior shots of the plane are clearly models and <laughs> yes they are and i and and in there's another movie when we get to the recommendations uh, where there's a there's a tr uh, the heist involving a helicopter and a train, and when you look at the exterior shots of the helicopter flying above the train, those are clearly models, and it does like and again for everything else that um, we talk about the meticulousness, the attention to detail, nothing ever feeling off his occasional use of model shots d doesn't quite pull off it end would end up being similar to like a, a spike lee kind of thing to do where he's just like no i want to where his ambition exceeds his grasp like he's just yeah. like i want to do this i want to show you you know the ex the outside of a plane i he like he makes it melville makes his movies for most of the time like hardly any money like he's outside of his studio system he's he doesn't have a lot of funding and so like for him to do like well i have no money how do i shoot a you know 
a helicopter uh, flying above a train or it's certainly safe to say his ambition exceeds his budget. I mean, because right in in this film as well, right. There's the, there's the bombing of London in the London sequence. And it's literally a cutout of a cityscape with a little bit of fire sitting behind the cutout, right. To make it look like the buildings are on fire. Uh, That was probably the most noticeable. I was like, Ooh, kind of special effect. But I think, I'm hoping this is the point that you're making. Um, those few and far instances in between, uh, it doesn't detract from the film at all. I think it's charming and interesting in the way that when we were talking about Spike Lee, some of the ways that his stuff kind of mashes together yeah. doesn't always fit. Ends up actually being endearing rather than off-putting. Um, because he just wants you to like, he wants to give you that shot he wants to give you the like thing that he can't afford to do realistically so he's going to come up with like a way to do it and you're going to know what he's doing but like you know he's still doing it if to me there is a pinnacle set piece in the film that also is very limited in its special effects but but kind of the limitation works in its favor the, the exception to what we're talking about lies in the sequence where ventura is um captured and is set to be executed, right? And Jesus Christ, that is that thing is. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to talk about a masterclass in how to build a suspenseful sequence, so the sequence is essentially Ventura is captured uh, with a bunch of other people. They're all paraded out, um, and as they walk out, they see um, three or four Germans with um, machine guns, like mounted machine guns, sitting there. And the German commandant goes, "Okay." All of you are to turn around so your backs are to the guns. And they're in this huge corridor where there's a wall all the way at the far side of the courtyard. He said, you're all to start running. We'll give you a sporting chance. And uh, whoever makes the wall can live long enough to be executed in the next round. And the whole sequence is... I mean, it is tense. It is terrifying. Um, Ventura does not want to run his, his French kind of resistant spirit wants to stay there. Uh, and you see how far that gets him because he does run. He's terrified. And this sets up an incredible escape sequence, um, which budget wise is pretty thin, <laughs> you know, but again, the way that Melville can make do with his, his ambition is such that just like Spike Lee, I think that's a great comparison. Uh, he with very minimal effects and 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 just love of the craft he makes that one of the most thrilling sequences i've seen like in years in a film uh it is so tense and it so beautifully plays into the ending of the film as well it, it's just a it, it's a gangbusters moment for this movie he the way he escapes is that unbeknownst to us and him uh uh matilde and his compatriots in the resistance have actually figured out where this is all taking place and they actually are able to throw some like smoke grenades into the underground corridor where they are and in the haze of smoke they lure a rope uh down for uh gerbier to grab and climb and so he actually climbs out of this corridor and manages to escape and on the one hand it doesn't it comes out of nowhere um it, you you don't have any sense that this is going to happen and but then on the other hand the, matilda's big shining like this is a I think this is actually a chance for us to talk about how awesome Matilda is. Oh yes. Um, I think this is the, her crowning achievement in the movie is getting, is planning his escape. But before this, you actually see her like with a bunch of maps of like compounds and, uh, 
you know, layouts of army mo- uh, soldier movements, trying to plan the escape of Felix, Felix, yeah. and, uh, and and Jean Francois, right? So yeah, so this is how convoluted this movie gets. Felix, yeah. uh, one of the the original gang is captured. He, I think he's the one who actually murders the traitor. He gets captured. Um, he doesn't have a cyanide pill. They have to break him out because the the torture he might get rid of somebody. So they have a plan to kind of um, pose as German ambulance drivers and take him out. There's really supposed to be four of them, but Jean-Pierre, who is the kind of dashing handsome one, he in the film writes a letter saying he's too afraid to do it. He's not going to do it, but then writes another letter incriminating himself as part of the resistance so that he can be thrown into the same jail cell as Felix to warn him that, Hey, we're going to come and rescue you. Be ready. Uh, and it's just, again, it's just one of those bravura kind of meticulously crafted. Again, it's like a high scene, but it's not a high scene. They're going to break out. It's an escape scene. Um, and the fact that it, it doesn't work because of certain things that happen, Matilde's next savior moment is to rescue. And I always forget his name. So I just keep calling him Lino Ventura to, to, uh, rescue him when he's in this kind of execution scenario. Well, and the fact that they're not able to. The fact that they're not like the fact that they're not able to rescue Felix boils down to a factor they couldn't have predicted, which is that the doctor at the at the camp that he's at is says that he's uh, too almost too dead to be moved, so they're not going to let him move. But then they still manage to like they still manage to sort of leave the compound un discovered like like it's 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 a partial i'd say it's only a partial failure because they managed to get out of there without tripping any alarms or getting caught or killed well it's a total failure that doesn't kill anyone more than the two people who wind up dying because felix and jean pierre that's it they they're dead after that so you don't see them again and i kept saying jean pierre because of melville it's uh (laughs) jean francois (laughs) jean francois but matilde is able to put together this just kick-ass plan to and and again it's all in the meticulous details in that sort of melville type way um and then she her and so it does it like when you at first you're surprised that she rescues him but then you think about it you're like well yeah she's she's really good at this like she's really good at her job um i think that um and again the the other point from uh, the commentary from Jeanette Vincendo that I noticed, and we don't need to dwell on this too much. I think if I think that if you watch Melville movies, they tend to be a bit dude heavy. Matilde, on the one hand, is sort of a powerful sort of uh, counterexample to that, except for the fact that the thing that the thing that ultimately undoes this group of resistance fighters is the fact that um, despite uh, Ventura warning her, to get rid of the picture of her daughter because that could tie them back to them. She doesn't. And then she gets captured. And so then the question, and so the, the ending of the movie is the remaining resistance people deciding, well, she's captured she's a liability we have to kill her and there's debate back and forth over whether they're going to do it or not and it's all very sad and tragic and ultimately they decide to just like gun her down in the streets and it's cold and it's terrible and then you get the sort of text of the credits of how each of them died in their own ways shortly after for as awesome as Matilde is her connection to her family her sense of like wanting to not be isolated from her family is weird that it's comes in the one uh, or that it comes in the one strong female character of this movie whereas everyone else is sort of the 
uh, Melville's uh, typical trust no one, no connections, no any of that stuff. Be be alone kind of thing. I think it's a fair cop. Yeah, to your point, it's a real fair cop because, I mean, the plot device of having a child to use against them. I mean, you could have put that on any of the characters, but the fact that he put it on Matilde does feel like a bit of a... Now you're just, you know, you spent all this time building up a woman who they come right out and say, like, she could take over as the head of the network. She is brilliant. She's a master of disguise. There's one sequence that they don't use for anything, but they have her trying on like three different disguises. And it's amazing just seeing how she changes her appearance. Um, and she she comes up with the plan originally to break out Felix and she memorizes and gets all the information um, for how the layouts are. And then to just kind of toss on, well, my daughter, so I'm going to give it up. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. I, I think that probably could have been handled a little bit better. Um, the one good piece that you do get out of that scenario is the fact that it's so duplicitous as to how they justify what they do when they gun her down. Luke Jardine kind of makes that argument of like, well, no, she she got herself to escape. She knows she can't kill herself. Uh, so she's 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 internally begging us to kill her to save the daughter. Uh, but then you find out like Jardine says like, I, that's just a guess. <laughs> you know, it's it's. I'm just saying this to get you guys to do what needs to happen. Uh, and it's such a douchebag move, but it's a it's kind of brilliant in the scope of the movie as to, again, to tie everything back to how unglamorous this is. The things that they resort to to justify their actions. This is not a romantic film at all. For as invested as you are in in all of the characters, even like the. You know the characters that don't get as much time as you know Ventura or uh, or the others. Like the ending is not played as some kind of like glamorous sort of triumph for the resistance. It is in fact like the sort of like the collapse of yeah, if not the resistance as a whole, then at least this group of people. Um, and so their 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 decision, if you f- like, you might feel like it's you know necessary, and so you can still say like yeah, just make it so that the daughter belongs to one of the dudes or something yeah this is not something that we feel good about uh going into the ending which i think actually like i think ultimately ends up tying the like the whole movie together like you you how many to bring back the existentialism of it all like they they managed to pull off some really really heroic things even despite sort of any sort of pretense about it and then it all just completely falls apart at the end yeah um to to the point that like you start asking like how much of this is is it worth it like like you really start to ask those kinds of evaluative questions no examination of melville is complete without army of shadows but it probably is not in the starting place if anything yeah look at like the later period of his life um there are some earlier films um i'll briefly talk about one when we talk about the recommendations um kind of in a tangential way but like Start in the 60s and just work your way. He, he didn't make a whole lot of films. Um, I think looking back, you and I were talking about the ones we've seen. Um, really, one, two, three, four. His last five films um, is about, like, there are one or two films before then that I've seen that are very good. But, uh, you know, if you just hit that, you, you're hitting kind of the breadth of what Melville brings to the table. And in a very, in a very satisfying way, I don't think there's any film there. Unflick, uh, Le Cirque Rouge. 
Army of Shadows, Le Samurai, and I will never say this one correctly in French, so I know it is translated to The Second Breath <laughs> uh, from 1966. Those are, uh, th- all of them are just uh, really, really good, solid uh, films to kind of check out from this guy. But on the best of the list, uh, I have to agree agree with you. Th- this is th- this film is an all timer for me. Yeah, I'd put that under like Faces, Places, and Amadeus for sure. Like yep. <laughs> in our growing list of holy shit, how good is this? That uh, Army of Shadows definitely belongs. on. We that. have to put up the Cinema Duel pantheon of, of films that have just kind of yeah given us the whole the holy shit. And I think yeah, I I would agree. We've got three at this point. Well, that's going to wrap up our Melville chat uh, for those two movies. But as always, we like to do some film recommendations. And Chris, why don't you get us started? Yeah, so I am not going to pick any Melville films for my recommendations, but I'm going to pick two films that are related to Melville. Uh, so the first one, uh, I don't know how easy this is to see anymore, but 2002, um, The Good Thief by Neil Jordan. Uh, starring Nick Nolte. This is actually a remake of a Melville film, uh, the 1955 film Bob Le Flambert. So when I talked about like uh, some of the earlier films, uh, that is a really good early film. Also, not that easy to see anymore. You can definitely see it on Amazon Prime. I don't think it's playing on Criterion. I know it's out of print from the Criterion collection now, but there are places where you can rent it and and see it. Um, The Good Thief is really, uh, it's just, it's a, it's, it's about a good thief and and it's about uh it's a it's a little bit of a crime film and an old wily thief who takes on a young ingenue um uh and it's about that one last job and it's just beautiful neil jordan has such a way with colors uh just like melville but 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 jordan is much more bold and much more brash in the way that he um, films things and it's just such a good film uh, I, I can't recommend it enough so that's film number one film number two um, doesn't directly relate to uh, Melville film but it takes a lot of inspiration from the samurai it is also going to be a forthcoming criterion uh, edition I can't wait to get it uh, and that is the 1999 film Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai. How can I not talk about another film where you have a hitman who lives by the Bushido Code, especially when it's this one with Forrest Whitaker. It's got the RZA in it. It's a Jim Jarmusch film. One day we are definitely going to be doing a Jarmusch episode for Cinema Duel because I love his work. Um, if you haven't seen Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai, come on. Where, where are you guys? It's it's fantastic. I'm not going to talk about the plot. Um but what I will talk about is uh, I think Jarmusch in some ways is a kind of filmmaking cousin to Melville. Um, this film in particular, um, the, there is dialogue. There's a lot of internal dialogue. And one of the things we didn't talk about with Army of Shadows, goddamn, is how good it, it usually internal monologues, um, interior monologues kind of are, are just the kiss of death in films. But Army of Shadow uses it so well. Uh, Ghost Dog does it as well sometimes. Uh, and it's just a very small movie that that just thematically just feels like it, it, it is kind of taking on the mantle of modern day Melville. So if you haven't seen it, you're crazy. Go and check it out. Um, and also The Good Thief, two, two fantastic films I can't recommend enough. 
for my picks, my first uh, my first recommendation is going to actually, it will be a Melville movie. It's his last movie. It's called uh, Flick. That's U-N space F-L-I-C. Um, this stars Alain Delon, as we talked about in the, the Samurai, as well as Catherine Deneuve and, weirdly enough, Richard Crenna. Richard I was not Crenna. Expecting. <laughs> yeah. What a weird choice for him to person to just show up in a random french movie um i've heard some people talk about this as being sort of uh not necessarily up to melville's standards um but i and so this might be more of a qualified personal recommendation but when i watched and flick my first immediate thought was holy shit this is heat uh this is the like cops versus teams of cops teams of robbers work just incredibly uh isolated broken lonely men who are committed to their job and to their process and are like and there's nothing personal about it it's just sort of these you spend the whole movie watching these two sides sort of like work you know uh sort of move towards each other um and there's and where like in heat the De Niro and Pacino talk about like, hey, we could maybe be friends because they're very similar. Here in this case, those two people actually are friends. They just don't know that they're the people that they're hunting. Um, it is, and, and for that, re- and it's got all the, and it's got all of the stylistic and uh, Melville isms that we've talked about. It's uh, it's really good, and I, and the, well, and of course, my second recommendation of court is Michael Mann's Heat. <laughs> that is i've loved heat for so many years and uh i feel like and 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 weirdly enough by establishing the relationship between Unflick and heat heat is a well-known uh inspiration for christopher nolan's the dark knight and so you can actually trace the dark knight all the way back to melville in some like you know it doesn't always it may not 100 percent line up um but there's this weird uh but i mean the Everything that we've talked about with Melville, I feel like shows up in Michael Mann movies a ton. Yeah, the the process, the 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 the, the minimal dialogue, the, the 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 broken people who you know communicate entirely through glances, that kind of stuff. That is all the stuff that shows up in Melville. I feel like Michael Mann does very well, and Heat is, I think, his best movie. So, uh, my last recommendation is uh, 1998's Ronin. Um, it stars, uh, oh man, Robert De Niro, Jean Reno, uh, Stalin Skarsgård, Sean Bean, just a, a whole bunch of people. Um, and this, and, and the reason I wanted to pick this is one, I, it's it's a it's a, a European crime movie with a bunch of people with just all gorgeously different accents. So that's 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 always fun for me. Um, and it's written by David Mamet, so you got some like sharp dialogue although i I don't think it's as i don't think it's quite as like laconic as uh as melville but they also like by use of the term ronin uh there they do kind of get in a a little bit of that sort of we're gonna compare ourselves to samurai stuff too um that i think fits in you know maybe loosely but uh but it's a it's a it's a fun movie that i i could see watching as it like a double feature with heat or something so i've never seen it my... but uh I'm, I'm assuming sean bean dies in it it's been a bit but yeah I, i'm pretty sure he dies in that one so <laughs> i'm shocked well chris it has been a whole heck of a lot of fun uh chatting melvo with you and adding another uh movie to our mountain of gloriousness um yes. 
maybe, maybe we'll come up with a better title at some point, but, uh, yeah. uh, I uh, hope everyone else is doing well out there, staying safe and uh, uh, healthy and employed where possible. Um, We'll be back uh, in another month to talk some more movies. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thanks again for having me, and we will uh, see you all next time. All right, take care. Bye. Holy shit, I forgot to talk about the hat. I talked about Chekhov in the beginning that if you introduce something in the first act, it has to pay off in the third act. And I forgot to talk about the hats in Army of Shadows. Uh, oh, man. Uh, j- just real quick, the scene where Felix is arrested um, and and brought into the Gestapo. He's walking down the street um, and it plays so beautifully. It, it's a shot of him walking down the street. But before you see him walk down the street, you see the Gestapo agent walk down the street and then hide in an alleyway. The shot stays kind of static. Felix comes down. Gestapo comes out, grab him. His hat is knocked off. They throw him into the car. The car drives off. And Melville, man, he just focuses right on that hat. You get that close-up of that hat sitting there. See, it always pays off. You got to have that payoff in the third act, even if it's coming at the end of the episode, John. You got to fire that hat. Got to fire that hat.